are listening to an episode of Dope with Lime, a production of the Lillian E. Smith Center at Piedmont College. Each episode of Dope with Lime explores the life, work, and legacy of Lillian E. Smith. Subscribe on iTunes or SoundCloud, and make sure to follow us on Twitter, at LES underscore center. Welcome. My name is Matthew Touch, and I am the director of the Lillian E. Smith Center at Piedmont College. Today, I am speaking with Jalisa Harris, an instructor of English at the University of Louisiana at Monroe and a PhD student at the University of Louisiana at Lafayette. We're going to talk about her teaching, social justice work, and Lillian Smith's There Are Things to Do from the winter 1942-43 issue of South Today. Thank you for joining me today, Jalisa. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. We both went to the same school, of course, mm-hmm. the ULM, uh, different times, different experiences, of course, and we both went to the same grad school, UL Lafayette. I know a little bit different experiences as well. But that's something we can maybe talk about, especially with your teaching at ULM. But before we do that, I think we need to get started, of course, with Lillian Smith's There are Things to Do. I reread that recently, and there's a lot of things in there that seem pertinent to today, even though she wrote this way back in 1942. You know, I keep thinking that while some things are different, more and more seems the same as we've seen over the past, you know, months years, decades, between when she wrote that and now. Do her suggestions still feel relevant to you today? Um, yes, they do. Um, while I was reading it, I had to remind myself, I think I had to go back maybe like twice to make sure um, it was published in 1942 because so much of it is so relevant, especially right now in the summer that we've just come from or we're trying to come out of. I think while I was reading it, I it really made me think about a piece that is so blatantly not written for me as a Black woman. Her audience is very clear, and I think very rarely do you find pieces like that, especially pieces that are, you know, that are older, that are directly speaking to a target audience, which white Southerners. So it made me think about a lot of the terminology that we use today and, and all of the protesting that's going on right now and about being an ally and being anti-racist and those weren't words that she used, but those sentiments are very much there, and it's still very relevant today. I think that she actually pushes the word ally on its head, because I think sometimes people think that if you sympathize with a problem, that you know it's wrong, then that means that you're an ally, and Smith is, in 1942, even Smith is saying that's not enough. It's not enough to just sympathize. You have to do work, and she even goes in that, that list of what work needs to be done in order to, you know, truly be an ally to to someone. And I think that that was really, really um, interesting that, that that's so heavily placed in there without ever using the terminology. And then the sentiment of being anti-racist, again, without ever using the terminology. So it's super relevant, even if those words aren't there, it's still very much, you know, kind of a how-to. I mean, she, she, she points out, like you said, her audience is, is specifically white Southerners, as she says, of course, addressed to intelligent white Southerners. She points out things, and she states it again and again. She's like, these are things you can do without fear of losing your job, yeah. essentially. And then at the end, she's like, these are things that you can do that you may lose your job. Mm-hmm. She's very upfront with it. Of course, she was in a position where she could say these things a little bit because she didn't have anybody hanging over her head to lose her job. Her and Paula were publishing the journal on her own. Mm-hmm. But a lot of the things, even for me still, when I, when I reread it, there's one that always stuck out to me because I, I read this initially, the first part of the pandemic, basically, right when we started going from home. 
And I thought about number 11 on page 38, where she says, pay your cook more, shorten her hours, treat her with more consideration. Mm-hmm. She's not your slave. Remember, she owes you nothing. On the contrary, you're probably heavily indebted to her for the many work hours she has given you free. Mm-hmm. When I read that, I think out to the side or wherever I was reading, I wrote essential workers. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, it's the same thing. It's not domestics, but essential workers who are working to keep everything going as mm-hmm. we are in shutdown, right? Yes. And then the way that we've seen them treated, of course, not before the pandemic, but especially during the pandemic and the results of that. That's one thing that stuck out to me. Mm-hmm. Definitely. I think, as like I said, as I was reading it, um, there is a sentiment there of kind of like the polite Southern, you know, she says things where she doesn't just blatantly come out and say, hey, you're being racist. Um, she, she doesn't in a very Southern way. Well, if you're a Southern woman, then you're in a better position to do this. And it's, and I think that even that approach, I don't know, I'm not sure if it's just an intentional or because she was Southern. So if it's just kind of like a, it's going to come out because you're a Southern person and you're, you are a white Southern woman, and that's how, you know, you're going to approach it. Or if there is a, a bit of sarcasm there, because, you know, obviously I'm reading it and I'm a little bit sarcastic, like, oh, well, yeah. <laughs> Everything I that she gets in parentheses. It's like I think it's partly the Southern woman thing. Yeah, there's a there's a clip because because the thing we got to remember is she's she's upper middle class or like that's initially where she was from her family fell of course but mm-hmm. white southern woman raised in that in that culture there's a clip of her in Hal Jacobs documentary I think it's with the Brown versus Board of Education decision and she's talking I think on national TV and she's very courteous very kind of southern very smiley. Mm-hmm. She's talking about the Brown decision and the impact it's going to have. And it's that, I think, that persona that she constructed for herself mm-hmm. and used the white Southern woman persona and the views of the white Southern woman to get her point across. Yeah. But I, th- I think you're right. She's using it, but I also think she's being sarcastic with it, too. Because she's mm-hmm. like, I know this is an issue. But yeah. I also think, too, this is early on. So this is before she really gets into that with Killers of the Dream in 49. So this is, I see this period with her in the journal is kind of working through these things because she gets, she's bited here, but she gets really bited later. Yeah, like I said, I definitely can see the target audience there. Like I said, I, even if I were a woman in 1942, a black woman in 1942 reading this, this is not for me, obviously. So I think even in using that Southern woman um you know, image in that in that tone, she knows who her target audience is. She knows how to approach her target audience. She knows what her target audience is going to respond well to and what they're not going to respond well to uh, while still getting most of her points across. So, again, you know, I had to keep checking. Is this 1942? <laughs> and, and it reminds me, every time I read it, I mean, I think of I think of the work that, Kent, that Ibram Kennedy does Mm-hmm. that uh, Ijeoma Lua does. And I haven't read D'Angelo's book, Robin D'Angelo's book, but I mean, even that. She uses Lillian Smith as an epigraph mm-hmm. in that book. And it, it's, as a white person, it's refreshing to know that somebody was doing this. They were doing it before, but speaking like this that early, I would say, and pointing these things out. And the other thing that gets to me too is her focus on kids. I mean, mm-hmm. I always go to that one line near the end where she's like, Let's raise democratic children, not little Nazis or something like that. Mm-hmm. I forgot. Uh, yeah, we can all begin to train our children now to be not little Nazis, but democratic world citizens. We owe this to them in order that they may adjust harmoniously and without psychic conflict to the new world democracy. 
which we now dream about and know is coming toward AI. Mm -hmm. And of course, one of the things she points out is to have groups bring in more, in this piece specifically, black authors, black speakers, to say Rotary Club meetings or things like that. And she tells the reader specifically too to subscribe to a black journal, right? I think she mentions Phylon and, and others that we know. She tells them, find a black author and read. You know, I started reading African American Lit probably right after undergrad, started grad school with Ellison's Invisible Man, give or take, something like that. And when I went to school at ULM, there wasn't African American literature class. You know, you said when you were there, I forgot what you graduated with your undergrad, but there was the first African American literature class, and now you're an instructor there and you've kind of taken it over. So, like I said, when I was thinking back, I remember reading Ralph Ellison. I remember reading Richard Wright and Gene Toomer in classes, but you came in when there was a class and like I said, you took it over. Can you talk some about developing that course into more of what it is today and the impact that that course has had on students and on the campus? When I was offered the class, I think I was probably about two years into um, working at the university as a full-time instructor. And because I have taken the class in undergrad um, and because of my area of focus, you know, I was asked to take it over and I was really excited. At that point, it was a special topics class. So it was not guaranteed that it was going to be back next semester or next year. Um, we didn't know how many people were going to, you know, be interested in the class. So I approached it like, if this is your only opportunity to teach whatever needs to be taught, then you're going to take full advantage of it. So I pulled out no stops. <laughs> I did whatever I wanted to do. <laughs> and by the time that enrollment started, it's a 44, it's a 45 person class. And I think I had over 20 in waitlist, waitlisting. So this is before any student even had been in my classes before yeah. and they knew what to expect. So that alone was enough of encouragement for me to say, hey, like the students want this, they want this. So that first class, I don't even think I was at the point where I was starting to think my classes just yet. I just kind of went through and I made a list of authors that I knew, authors that I didn't know, and who they needed to know right now, just because, again, I wasn't quite sure if it was going to make again or if I would have the opportunity again, but it was a very successful class. And because of that, it got offered, you know, every spring um, and then eventually became every fall and spring. So now there's two sections of the course. And I approach it now, whereas every semester there is a different theme. We approach um, masculinity. This semester we're actually doing unruly women and we're focusing on Toni Morrison. And um, in the past we've done political classes. So, and then I've even done um, cultural commentary where we talked about sitcoms and how they, you know, what commentary they were making on, on social and global issues at the time. So it's really important to me that I offer something different for each class because I know, because this is the only type of class that they have like this, that I do have repeat students. Somebody who will take me in the fall may take me in the spring, and I want them to get something different from it each time. It's also a class where I've been able to open dialogue. I ask students uh, questions that I don't think they necessarily get asked anywhere else on campus. I ask them about their individual experiences. Um, because the class is predominantly African-American, are predominantly African-American students, I do think that there's a level of comfort there where they feel they can tell me things sometimes. And then sometimes we have non-African-American students in the class, and I think that gives them perspective to be able to know what it feels like to be the minority in a class, because um, often it's the African-American students who do feel like the minorities in their other classes. And so 
you know, I asked him questions like, do you feel that you belong, you know, at this university? Um, I think that's a really important question. I went to that school, so I know that sometimes it can feel a little isolating. Um, You kind of have to find your own group. And it's not just for African-American students. That can be for international students. That can be from a student who is out of state, you know. So I think it's really important to pose those questions to our students to get a feel for where they are and how we can, you know, what we can do, if there's anything we can do to make them feel more included because they're paying their tuition, they've gotten scholarships, they deserve to be there just like any other student. Um, And sometimes I do get answers that, you know, kind of break my heart. You know, I had a student tell me that she didn't think that, um, she felt like as a black student that she just got to graduate and that she didn't ever get to feel like a war hawk, like she didn't get to feel that pride, like she didn't feel included. And as a person who not only works at this university, but also attended this university, I wanted her to feel like a Warhawk. I wanted her to have that pride in her school. But I think what my class does and what I try to do in my class is try to pinpoint those times where I need to do less talking and more listening um, because I can't fix that for her in one class. But I think by starting the dialogue and allowing her a space where she could talk about it um, and get feedback from other students, get suggestions from other students. I think that's also important as well. If we don't just sit there and you know, talk about what isn't available, we talk about what is available, what you could do differently, what organizations are on campus, you know, and I think that's one of the things that I really, really hope they, they gain, my students gain from my courses, not only, you know, knowledge and understanding of literature and the text, but also a sense of placement and how to go out and get their own placement, you know, like, don't wait for somebody to open a door for you or open or metaphorical seat at the table but you create your own space where you don't need that you don't require that and I'm proud that some of them are definitely doing that for themselves and that's that's one of the greatest things about teaching this class and teaching all of my classes is seeing them adapt what we do on a small scale into their own individual places and become their own leaders on campus it just makes me really, really excited. And it makes me, again, gives me, it gives me the motivation I need to, to theme the next course and decide, like, I get really excited in the summertime because I'm like, oh, this is going to be a great place for you to talk about this. And it's really dorky, but it's okay because that translates oh. and they get to see my excitement. Um, but so it's, it's, just, it's not dorky because I'm rereading stuff and I'm like, oh, I can do this. I can do that. I can do that. Yeah. Yeah. It's dorky to them, but it's not dorky to me. Um, but yeah, they get to see the excitement and like, you know, how I, I my take on certain literature, especially older literature. And I talk about like, you know, set the scene. What do you think this person looked like? And what do you think they were saying when they said this? Like, so it is. It's a great, it's a great class. I enjoy it. It brings me so much joy. <laughs> it brings you, me joy. you mentioned that it's kind of a space for organization. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the things I know that you've done is, is you've worked with the Fem Hawks, which is um, the feminist group on campus, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And but before I get to that, I kind of want to ask you, out of your students, what kind of organizations or what kind of things have they started? That uh, that may not necessarily started in your class, but may have given them the springboard to, to do something on campus. Yeah, well, I'm also the advisor, academic advisor for the NAACP, and I can honestly say that they are the most organized group of young students I have ever encountered in my life. And it's, it changed, but their leadership changes every year. So it's not just one leader that's driving them. They care, and the, the care that each individual member places into 
this organization, it shows year after year. I've been their advisor for probably about like three years now. And I constantly tell people, like, they'll, I'll have faculty members come to me and say, how do you, you know, they're always doing events. Like, what are you doing? And I'm like, it's not me. It's not me at all. Like, I am there to help. I am there to do whatever they need me to do. But it is 100% them. It is a well-oiled machine. And sometimes I think I, I've been invited to, uh, to panels and they'll kind of, if I have members in the class, they'll take some of the stuff that we talk about in class and I'll kind of see them incorporate it. And that obviously gives me a little bit of excitement. I'm like, oh, it's, it's, it's landing somewhere. So that group is definitely one that I think is super organized, super, they're always, they're always doing something on campus. I've also, like I said, I've been a part of the FemHawks, which was started probably about two years ago. Um, and that is, a social justice group on campus that is about gender equality. That's been really important to me as well because a lot of what we talk about in some of my classes deals with gender. And I think it's really important that our students have a place where they know, you know, their faculty and their other students there who care about their rights and their experiences, whether that is, you know, just pay wage or even down to, you know, gender violence, like that's something as well that I am really, um, that I really want to support in terms of bringing more awareness to and providing platforms for students to know that they have someone or they have a place where they can connect and they know their resources. So that's really important to me as well. I'm also a the chair of the Women's Symposium, which is a nonprofit that is housed on our campus. And that focus is more community-based, but it's also focused towards students and connecting and networking them, helping them network with, you know, mentors of various uh, career paths. So I would say that for me, any organization that I'm going to be an advisor of, I'm going to be a part of, it has to be about connecting students and helping them and mentoring them and getting them the platforms that they need in order to succeed in whatever aspect of their life they need to succeed in. So it's not one particular area, but it's just, let me help me, let me help you get to that next level or connect you with somebody who can get you to that next level because I can't always do it. And what's really, I, I noticed something when you were talking that stuck out to me that made me think of Lillian Smith a little bit um, and other stuff too. There's this intersection of pedagogy and what you teach and what you read and what you know and activism and action. Mm-hmm. which is exactly what she did. I mean, I read that quote a second ago from, from the piece where she said, we can all begin to train our children now to be not little Nazis, but democratic world citizens. And that's not just learning in the classroom, but it's also implementing that learning elsewhere. Mm-hmm. And I think back to, um, to high school, and you know this because we talked about it, you know, just via message or whatever, but I grew up in Bossier. We, we both grew up in the same town too. I mean, different experiences there, different times, and different experiences for other reasons as well, race and gender. But I had no clue about the Bossier Massacre in 1828. I had no clue about all the racial violence that occurred in the Red River Valley area, but also all across I-20 into Washita. No clue. Never taught that in high school. Never taught it in college. Never knew any of it. And when students get to college, you know, they come face-to-face this information. And we've heard about it everywhere from... Jefferson being an enslaver and raping Sally Hemings and all of this and other stuff too, and George Washington. And we don't experience that in K-12. So it kind of warps us as people say, and I agree. For example, I was watching John Oliver's last week tonight talking about U.S. history. And there was a guy that he mentioned who grew up in Tulsa, you know, grew up in Greenwood basically, 
went to OU and knew nothing when he was in FM history class. There's the professor at Tom of the Tulsa um, massacre. And he was like, I'm from Tulsa. I don't know anything about that. I didn't have it there. There's a Black Wall Street. I don't know anything about that. I grew up on that street. I didn't know anything about it. So they learned about when they got to college. You know, what can we do? But we're, we're teaching at the university level, but what can we do to better prepare students um, and make them more democratic world citizens? Either, either at the K-12 or, or at the university level, yeah. I mean, having them come face to face with these things. Yeah. I think that I will say from personal experience that on the university level, it's kind of, I don't want to say it's too late, but I feel that I, uh, I have students who know only Martin Luther King Jr. <laughs> Only, that's all they know, Rosa Parks, that's all. And then I have students who, you know, studied and they know the Black Panther Party. Um, it may be more because of their parents, but I think that there's not a whole lot that I can do in terms of fundamental change on the collegiate level. I can teach a class. I can hope that I've given them enough information for them to kind of go out and do like self-exploration. But I think the real change needs to happen on the K through 12 level. I have friends who are educators of all, um, all through K through 12, principals, reading specialists, teachers. Uh, and I ask them this question uh, often about what do you think, you know, can, needs to happen? You know, you guys are, you, you know more about this than I do in terms of setting that foundation because I've never taught on any other level other than the one that I'm currently on. And the consistent answer is about, and I think in, it's interesting that even Smith says this, it's about to make structural change, you have to do representation and leadership. It's the leadership. She even says, you know, curriculum. Mm-hmm. Teachers in K through 12 are going to teach what they are supposed to teach or they're told to teach, right? You don't really have the autonomy that I do. You know, I can have an entire summer where I get to just plan what I want to teach. And that's not what a K through 12 teacher has in these schools, right? Yeah, I was talking to... I was talking to a teacher in Bossier Parish, and she was like, I want to teach these things, but I can't. Six yeah. Grade, six grade, yeah. I think sixth grade ELA. Yeah, so it becomes a little bit of a tightrope of figuring out how to maneuver, squeeze in just a little bit of information that you know these students need to know. So ultimately, it's about the curriculum. It's about who's creating that curriculum. It's about if you're teaching from a book, it's about who's writing that book, who, right. who gets to determine what history is taught to these children in fundamental that we need. I was gonna say, I, I think, this just came to me too, I think that the only African-American text that they read is Langston Hughes. Mm-hmm. I think that's what she told me. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it's, it's who writes the text, who implements, you know, the standards, right? Mm-hmm. The standardized testing, of course, whole other issue. Mm-hmm. So it is a structural change that we got to work with. Yes. But I, I like what you said too, and, I mean, the college level is where I opened up. Mm-hmm. Um, I do agree that that change is hard at that level, and it gets harder as time goes on, too. And what you said, that you hope to give students the tools to actually, or the inspiration to actually look and learn on their own. Mm-hmm. And again, that, that reminds me, um, Smith wrote a letter to an English teacher. He wrote her asking her, you know, what should I tell my students? And she's like, well, high school, not that big of a deal. You know, just go to college. Yes. Basically, but her, her key is that education and learning is experiential. And she talks about her college experience. Then she talks about everything else she did, learning from the camp, going to China, these one-on-one interactions. 
and she says two things that always stick out to me. Um, these are near the end. She says, well, I think all of life is learning. If you want to close up, you can close up. Uh, but if, you're, if you open up, you'll be bound to learn, to become aware, to reach out for others and toward others, to build bridges from one to another. Mm -hmm. So you can either close up or open, mm -hmm. which we know as teachers happens. But she ends with this. I don't know when learning stops, but I know a writer never stops learning, not ever, until she is dead as a creative being. When you stop learning, stop listening, stop looking and asking questions, always new questions, then it's time to die. Time to crawl into the small room and pull the cover over you. Yeah. How do we get students to do that? Again, I think that we have, they have to be introduced to at this point, we have to completely reimagine even how we introduce the origin of America to students. You know, founding father, a per someone, another teacher that I know um, recently told me that they think uh, the 1619 project that the New York Times published maybe last year or a little bit earlier. Yeah, last fall. 2020 seems like forever so sometime then that needs to be you know I know they have a, a version that's 4k through 12 but finding a way to make that the standard because even as an adult you know teaching and listening and learning all of this all of this information on my own I still it still made me question how we approach the quote-unquote founding fathers and the yeah. image that was presented to me as a kid and I think that even works like that and doing doing the hard work of really trying to figure out, or not even trying to figure out because there are things that are already packaged for you. It's just implementing them so that the students, you're not telling a person that this is a hero because they're the founding father, they're a hero. And then you have to wait until you're in college to find out that this person's not a hero, <laughs> this person enslaved people, this person, you know, this person did really bad things. You shouldn't have to wait to get to college to know these things. I think that we assume that children can't handle that when... I think they handle it better than we do. I think they can handle it a lot better. Like we've been lying to them. <laughs> we've been lying to them to preserve something. And it's like, how about we just tell them the truth? It's an ugly truth, tell them the truth. I, mean, I, look at, I look at my daughter and of course I tell her these things. And I think that she handles it a lot better than most adults do. Yes. Because yes. She's, she's, still, she's still being formed a little bit too. And I, I think, I keep coming back. To, I, I think that's what makes Lillian Smith so important is because she understood that. Mm -hmm. She she focused on that. I mean, the camp that she ran, she was very much involved in pedagogy and talking to those kids openly about race, mm -hmm. talking to them openly about what segregation does mm -hmm. psychologically, not just to the person who was being segregated, but to the person who was doing the segregating. Mm -hmm. She was mm -hmm. very honest with them about that. And I think that that and it didn't take with all the kids. I've heard of some campers who totally rejected what she said, basically. Yeah. But but the ones that it took with, what I what I've seen is, it was a generational impact mm -hmm. from camper to to kid to grandkid. It kept going, and I think that's what's important. That's why K twelve is so important. Yeah. Think about Christopher Columbus, right? And, and we had a whole day off, right? When he was in elementary school, a whole day off, we had a song, <laughs> all of these things. And then you get older and you're like, wait, 
That is not at all what he did. And He's I, actually one of the ones who started the Atlantic slave trade. Exactly. And I think now I'm noticing with younger kids, now that when, when, when quote-unquote Columbus Day or Indigenous Peoples Day, let's say that, happens, I'm noticing that uh, students who are younger are not even, they're like, no, he didn't do that. And I think, like, that's the example that we can kind of follow, that it's okay to tell them the truth because they can know the truth at the age of 11 instead of, you know, when they're in school, when they're in college. And I'm, you know, I, I told my students about him and some of them were like, oh yeah, I remember this. And some of them were like, I had no idea that he did all of this. Like, you know, we just sung a song. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah. You know. Well, it's like, it's like me. I didn't realize that, I, I forgot both their names, but the two Native Americans, Squanto and um, the two that helped the pilgrims. Mm -hmm. They actually knew English because one of them went to England. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't know that until a couple of years ago until I taught William Bradford's on Plymouth Plantation. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I mean, those are important things. It's not just like they came in and were like, hey, we're white. How are you doing? Yeah. I think that I, I think that's a good model for how if we start telling students the truth or, pre or presenting the history to them early that they start to just accept it and they, and they kind of know like this is not okay, you know, they start to understand why this is not somebody we should we should be celebrating, not necessarily, but we should be celebrating. Yeah, well, there, there are things we can celebrate with people, but things we can also despise about people. Exactly. And it's like, I didn't know that at 11. And my nephew, who's 11, knows that, you know? So, like, I kind of envy that you get to grow up knowing things that I thought to be true most of my academic life. <laughs> and yeah. until I was an adult and start taking, you know, things on my own. And I'm like, wait, this is not what I was taught, you know? So I think that's just one example of that, of if we start early, then just imagine what, how they'll approach, how they will approach, like that, that this age, that this generation, the 11 year olds, the, the K through 12 down, how they will approach some of the things that Smith was talking about in the piece. I, I, I think that if we just start to do that a little bit at a time, then it won't be so, be, be, be as big and scary as it's as, as being presented. Like, Oh, it's going to be so scary. They're not going to, you know, they're not going to adapt. They're not going to take, no, they can. They can and they will. Just got to do it. You <laughs> just got to do it. Gotta and they can it. lead us to something good. Mm -hmm. Oh, well, this has been very enjoyable. It has been. Thank you very much for, for spending some time with us and talking about these things. I mean, there's a lot we could have talked about that could have moved on yeah. longer, but you gave us a lot to think about. And I appreciate that. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dope with Lime. Did you enjoy this episode? Have thoughts? Use the hashtag Dope with Lime on social media or get in touch with us at lescenter at piedmont.edu. You can learn more about Lillian E. Smith and the center by visiting www.piedmont.edu backslash les.